0: hey welcome to another episode of use words podcast well actually it's another episode of hey church and this is episode one so last week was episode zero why we do this you know and where i went over some of the stats about what is going on and what 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 prompted this next we're going on to episode one which is this week so sit back relax, and enjoy. Good morning, everyone. It is Paul, and welcome to another episode of Hey Church. I thank you for tuning into this episode. So last week, we went ahead and talked about what were some of the stats about mental health and that, and that was kind of the basis of why this podcast started, why this podcast exists, why... This is going on like it is. And with this week, I want to go ahead and talk about a couple things. First off, my story with mental health. I know I have addressed this before in uh, user words podcast episodes, uh, back when we really first started out user words. But I want to go ahead and re, I guess, retell the story, uh, both A, from a fresh perspective of a couple years now on since this has happened, but also B, better quality, the Audio quality at the time when we did that recording wasn't the best. We were still learning, still getting our feet wet, still doing a few things. And I wanted to be in as crystal clear as possible. But at the same time, I also realized that, hey, there may not be a cross link between people who listen to user words and listen to Hey Church. So I want to make sure that my story gets told in that regard. I also want to talk about... um, a few other things as well. So one of the things I want to talk about is I don't believe in gatekeeping. Now, when I say I don't believe in gatekeeping, what I mean is I don't believe that you have to have been a person or be a person currently going through mental health, to mental health issues, excuse me, to be able to help others or be an advocate for others who have mental health issues. So, so what do I mean by that? There's this thought in this conversation that I have been a part of in various times where people say, well, unless you have gone through X, you wouldn't understand it and you shouldn't talk about it and you shouldn't help someone or attempt to help someone else who's having X issue. In other words, what they're getting at is unless you've gone through a mental health issue, unless you've had some issues with mental health, where if you haven't gone through depression that you shouldn't be an advocate for or talk about or try to help someone with depression because obviously you don't understand it. And that's at least the thought and the concept that's going on in the back of uh, the person's head at the time. And I don't believe that that's a true thing. You know, I, 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 we don't put gatekeeping in other areas. Like, you know, we don't put gatekeeping regarding, like, if you haven't been the victim of sexual assault, you can't help and assist those who are going through that issue. And that's a very traumatic issue, not to make light of it at all, but we don't put the gatekeeping there. We don't say, well, the only way you can help someone is if you have been a victim yourself. No, we say, look, we have people who are trained. We have people who emphasize, empathize with this. You know, we have people who may not have been a victim themselves. Thankfully, um, that, that is not something that you wish on anyone, but they go, you they may not have been a victim themselves, but they understand that there's trauma, that there's hurt. They may not understand the exact feelings, but they want to help. And they study at school and they go, this is how we help. This is how we learn. So I don't believe in that sort of gatekeeping, especially with mental health. There are people out there who want to help others who have mental health issues, and that is great. And it does not require that you yourself or that person who wants to help have suffered or is currently suffering with a mental health condition in order to be someone who can help. I do not wish any of this, any of this uh, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, or anything like that on my worst enemy, period. You know, it, the whole thing, you know, there's bad as Hitler, that whole comment system out there in the world. I wouldn't even wish this on Hitler. That's how. That's how much I do not want this on anyone. It is a very damning. It is a very hurtful. It is a very hard thing to go through. And if you haven't gone through a mental health episode of any sort, and I bring that up as anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, uh, you know ADHD, anything like that. Obsessive compulsive disorder, any of those. I I categorize those all because mental health is a very broad category. If you haven't gone through any of that, that is great. And you should thank God for that. And I thank God for you that you haven't. Because if we look at the stats recently, as we come out of this pandemic out of 2020, and you know, we're already halfway through 2021. If we look through that, we see that over the course of the pandemic, calls to suicide hotlines have increased eight to 900%, depending on the stats you look at. I was just at LifeFest up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and they were talking about that nationally, they have seen an increase of calls to suicide hotlines up 800%. An article by CNN claimed it was up by about 896%. So again, depending on the statistics that you believe and the statistics that you have available to you, you see that increase go up. And that's just astounding because suicide is, it's the number one or number two, I can't remember off the top of my head, it's the number one or number two killer of teenagers in the United States. So to see an increase in, in calls by that much is alarming, tells you how urgent of a matter mental health is in the United States, both in and outside the church. So let's continue on here. What is my story with mental health? So if this was, you know, one of those, you know, anonymous meetings, you'd go, you know, you stand up in front of the podium and go, hi, my name is Paul DeArment. Hi, Paul. And I am a depressed person. Now, there's more to it than just depression for me. There's depression, anxiety, Uh, at multiple points during my teenage and adult life, I'd say suicidal ideation. Uh, In other words, for non medical people or non people who haven't gone through the program, such as myself. I was very much suicidal for a good chunk of my, you know, high school and adult life. Now it wasn't a continuous thing and I'll get into that in a second. So those are the three things specifically that I have dealt with. Thankfully, I haven't dealt with anything else than that. Uh, that would be quite overwhelming. I'd imagine to deal with all of that in addition to those things. But I know, I know people who have other issues as well and seeing how they're going through it. And it, they deal with it in their own way. And there's various things that we can do as we go along through life to help each other out with that. But that's their story. That's their conversation that they need to have. And that's the help I need to help them with as we go through things. But today I want to share what my story is. And I'm not sharing my story in an attempt to be, oh, pity party, woe is Paul. Um, You know, we should have sympathy for him. This is the story of what has happened through my life. It's also uh, the story of how those around me have shaped how I have responded to this. And it's also the story of how eventually I got help. So it, it starts off kind of, I guess you could say on the low note, but then eventually comes up. So Let's go ahead and start where every good story starts, and that's at the beginning. I was, would have been 14 years old. It was December, early December, and it was late in the evening slash early morning. So, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, 1150 to 12 a.m. time frame here is what we're talking about. My dad had already been in hospice for about a good week. We had seen a rapid decline in his health, in his ability to uh, drink, to breathe, to communicate in just a week. We're talking about a guy who at Thanksgiving was walking around. We left the day after Thanksgiving to Disney World. By the time we got down there, he was already feeling kind of ill. He went and he went to the ER. He had to be in a wheelchair from then on. He wasn't always feeling the best, but, you know, even, and even in the hot Florida sun, he was in a wheelchair and he needed a blanket to stay warm. But we took him around to Disney World and he toughed it out some, but we came back early. So we went from walking to Thanksgiving, ER, wheelchair, And when we got back to Racine um, after Disney, it was straight to um, in-home hospice care. And they brought in a hospital bed and everything uh, so he could be more comfortable in the house. We had 24-7, you know, someone from the family was there. But I remember it because it was, it would have been a Saturday night. And I stayed up late. My brother, younger brother, went to sleep. And I was with them that night because we knew it was coming. It was coming soon. Um, my mom was there. She was kind of trying to hold it. She had to go use the restroom but didn't want to do it. And because she was like, ah, as soon as I do, do it, that's when it's going to happen. And she finally gave in because her bladder was going to just explode. So she was like, I got to go. She went up went from our living room to the bathroom, which is off of our kitchen. And I remember talking to my dad and I, I knew he couldn't, well, he could hear me, but he wasn't able to respond in any meaningful way. He was dehydrated. He was starving. And he was probably high as a kite on morphine, if I'm being honest. And that, that, that was Okay. You know, he, he was in a lot of pain. Um, he had cancer from Agent Orange in Vietnam. So he had lung, spine, liver, brain, cancer, and there are probably other areas too that we didn't know about. So he was in a lot of pain and he was fading quickly. Like I said, Thanksgiving walking. Disney World, ER, wheelchair, back. And he was in, hosp- in home hospice for about a week. And I remember holding my dad's hand and I told him it was okay. It was okay for him to go. I knew he was hurting. I knew he was in pain. I knew he was suffering. And while I couldn't be the man of the house. I mean, I was 14. Give me, give me a break there. <laughs> it was okay. And as I held his hand, uh, my aunt was on the floor. And, and like I said, we knew it was getting close to the end. so she was trying to call some, some family members say, Hey, come over. We're about to, it's about to be the last hour. But as I was holding his hand, I heard him exhale. There was no inhale. That does something to you when you're 14. Seeing a parent, a loved one die, holding their hand while they take their last breath. And for the longest time, I pretended that I was okay with that. I pretended that it was just a fact of life. And I didn't let myself heal from the pain I felt. Because I felt, I felt I had to be strong for my mom, for my younger brother. You know, you're fed those wonderful, wonderful lies that you're taught as a stereotypical man. You know, men don't cry. Men don't show emotions. You got to be strong for the family. In those regards, I agree with the people who call masculinity toxic. And I agree that we call out some of those things and say, this is what a man should be and that is toxic and that's damaging and it's damning to young men everywhere when they're told that I don't agree with the rest of the toxic masculinity thing, just FYI, just that portion. But we have to address that that was very damaging, very hurtful. To tell that to a young man, especially as they're growing up, as they're learning who they are, to be told that showing emotion, showing hurt and pain is not what you do. When in fact, it is the very, it's the very essence and very essential to do that. It is very much human nature to show that hurt, to show that pain, to cry, to wail, to mourn properly when a loved one dies. And I never did. I believe those lies that I was told by my family. You're a man. You don't cry. That was damaging. It was damaging because I kept those emotions. I kept that pain bottled up inside of me. And If you've ever taken a bottle of soda, you've shaken it. You know how it fizzes up. Imagine all that pressure just building up over years and years and years. And eventually something's going to blow. Now, it didn't start at first. No, no, no. Took up, you know, maybe a year or two. And then around the anniversary of my dad's birthday, which was the end of October, I'd start to feel a little depressed. And it would continue and it would get worse until the anniversary of his death, which was in early December. And then it would seem to rectify, mostly, most of the time. There were years where it continued on past that date of early December. And those are the years when I started thinking, is, is life even worth living? Why, sh- why, why does this matter? And here's the screwed up thing. I was a young Christian at this time too. I, I, I became saved. Uh, I, I, that's a weird way, way to phrase it. I was saved the summer before my dad passed away. Now, that being said, I really hadn't attended youth group or anything that long. My dad, for whatever reason, never wanted us or sent us to youth group or the youth camps or the retreats or anything like that, really. Um, I don't know why. And maybe one day, hopefully one day, I can ask him why. But regardless, just because I was saved... Didn't mean I was immune to any of this. And boy, was I not immune. Every, every uh, winter, our church youth group does a winter retreat. And that's been going on since I was in high school. Uh, and that has continued on to this day. And I get to work with those teens at the retreat nowadays, which is fun both in a musical capacity as well as a leader capacity. I remember going to one of those youth retreats. I had no hope. I was at the end of my ropes. I didn't think life was worth living. And I decided that I was going to go to this retreat as kind of this last resort sort of deal. And if I didn't feel any better, I was going to come home and end my life somehow. I I didn't have a I didn't have a a plan in place like I was gonna go grab a gun or if I was gonna take pills or something I was just like I'm gonna find a way to do it. This was the first time that I was suicidal, by the way, and I remember just kind of keeping to myself, not doing much, not wanting to do anything. But you know, I went along to the activities and that, and someone came up to me and said, "Hey." how are you? Me and that person were friends until he passed away uh, a couple years ago due to cancer. And I told him one time when we were, when I was back home from college visiting and I told him, you saying, hey, how are you? Saved my life. It changed the direction that I was going. Because up until that point, I, I was not, really friends with anyone with within the youth group. I was the newer guy at the youth group and everyone kind of had their clicks. And I really wasn't fitting in. And my personality was to such that I'd like to be a loner anyways, to begin with. So it made it even harder for me to do that. But him saying, Hey, him reaching out, that was enough to make me feel like, Hey, I'm not a hundred percent alone and maybe someone does care. And you know what? That man really did care. He was my age at the time. I call him a man because, you know, that that's the, how I last knew him as. That person really did care, and I won't forget him for that. After that experience, um, every year I still got depressed between October and December, and I would still have my my years where I would be completely fine. Suicide wouldn't enter the the equation at all but I would be quote unquote fine as in I was just depressed as in I wouldn't want to get out of bed. I was sleeping late. I was unmotivated at work completely. I didn't want to be at work. It was a pain to be at work. Um, In a way, some of the the, quote unquote training I got from my family about hiding your emotions came came in to be useful because I was able to keep that that feeling of just wanting to cry and scream and run away, uh, suppress down, well, work at least. And then I'd go home and just, depending on the year, either just shut down, go to sleep, or cry in my car for hours on end. And this became a yearly cycle. And there were a couple people who knew about it and who kept tabs on me during that time. And then 2017 came. The fall cycle came, but it never left. And then we went to the deep winter. The end of December, it was still around. I remember talking to my friend Andy. And I. I it was around, it would have been around Thanksgiving and around Christmas both. I was just like, I, I was expressing to him how alone and depressed i was feeling how mentally broken i was he was like hey come to my family for um thanksgiving i was like and, and, and it would would have been out in iowa i was like i i i can't i i, I was like I, I can't be around that many people and then the same thing for christmas and i don't honestly don't remember for christmas if i went over to his house or what but by Christmas, I was pretty much shut down. And then January came around. And these thoughts of life isn't worth living were just stronger and stronger. And I, at that point, I would given up hope. So January 2018, I was on Xbox chat with um, Aaron of User Words. And I finally said the words that were so hard to say. I said, I need help. How I wasn't aware how saying those three words would jumpstart would jump so many people into action. Here I was feeling depressed, alone, that nobody cared. And by me saying three words, a chain of people started moving into action to get me assistance. To a depressed mind, there's a reality of our head And then there's a reality that is reality. The reality in our head says we are alone. No one cares. The reality in our head says that life is meaningless and we are worthless and that no one would even notice if we were gone. The depressed mind will latch on to any excuse to stay away from people. It will look for any reason to push people away, to ignore people. The depressed mind will say, "I'm not loved," but I was proven also wrong with that, and I'm grateful for that. When I said I need help, Aaron, you know they say in the the uh, the South, you know, bless his heart, you know, bless his heart, and I don't mean it in a derogatory Southern way. I mean literally. But Aaron didn't know what to do, you know. And let's be honest here: me and Aaron have a 12-year Um, age difference. So there's no reason I should expect Aaron to know what to do in that regard. He's still a young in himself, but he knew other people who could jump in. So Aaron talked with Andy. Andy talked with pastor, with my pastor, well, our pastor and the three of them together devised a plan. Essentially. You know, there, there was one day in particular before I actually got the help. When I remember messaging Andy, I am like, I'm just sitting out of my car right now. So I don't reach over and grab those pills, which are in uh, my cabinet. It was like, I'm doing what I can to keep myself safe, but but I'm like, but why am I doing that if I don't feel like it's worth it? Most of me had given up. Most of me just wanted out and was willing to take any road and my my plan honestly at that time was i uh, just take a massive load of pills, whatever pills I could grab my hands on. Thankfully, there was still part of me that didn't that didn't want to end and that part of me won that day thankfully well that that month but it was rough there were there were days where I would go to work. And I just sat in front of my computer screen and did nothing because my brain was so scattered. And if you've never been in that con- that, that condition before, it is hard to understand how scattered a brain can be. When you're depressed, when you don't want to go on living, and your mind's just racing... And it's grabbing onto every little thing and saying, oh, this person hates me because I'm bugging them. This person hates me because they didn't text me back. This person hates me. This person, this, da, da, da. It is amazing how fast the mind can process negative thoughts and create imaginary negative thoughts out of thin air. It is just wonderfully amazing. But I held on. I didn't want to at times. Definitely didn't. And... Like I said, Aaron talked to Andy, Andy obviously was worried and he, especially the day where I said, you know, I'm just kind of sitting in my car crying and uh, keeping myself from reaching for those pills and that, you know, he was trying to get, trying to get a hold of someone like the suicide helpline. And he's like, he couldn't believe how long he had to wait to get to talk someone. And this was before the pandemic. So I can't even imagine the wait times now during the pandemic and the lockdowns and how much that has increased those wait times. But after he couldn't get any answers and, you know, he talked to me a little bit. It was one of those things of like, how safe am I, am I going to do anything? And I promised him I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do anything. Um, and that I would see him the next day at church. And I I basically, at that point, had pulled out from any of my volunteering that I had done for the church. So I wasn't doing music um, or anything. I wasn't, I I pulled out all my, um, all my time. I needed to, I needed, I needed help mentally. Thankfully, my church understood. Thankfully, I had Andy on my side and his wife, Heather. Um, They both understood this. and They understood that I needed to back off for a while until I was better. And uh, Andy had contacted our pastor and said, hey, you know, he's like, I'm at the end of my rope at this point. Uh, As far as he didn't know what to do to get me help. He's like, can you help? And it was a Sunday. I went to church late. I didn't want to go, but I had promised Andy I would. I didn't go into the sanctuary. I sat outside in the common hallway. And I must have looked like a hot mess. (laughs) Because Aaron's dad walked by and he goes, something's not right. He's like, something's not right. Literally, he he came up to me and goes, something's not right. I don't know what. I can't. You're not saying what. He goes, something's not right. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm just like, thanks. Because that's all I can muster out that time. Uh, Sermon gets done. Message service gets done. Uh, Pastor walks out and he's like, yeah, come over to my house. Um, And then he's like, oh, wait, nope, we're going to lunch. (laughs) So I ended up going to lunch with the pastor and some other uh, people because just because that had been scheduled and, you know, if you've ever had to try to fake a smile in times when you didn't want to smile, or if you ever had to try to fake being polite when at times you just want to scream and yell at people, that's what it was like that entire lunch. <laughs> so we went to lunch and you know, that was very mentally exhausting and draining. And then afterwards uh, me and the pastor sat down and talked and I told him what was going on. And it took me, it took me a long time to finally get up the, the courage to say the words. The words that were hard and I kept kept tr- I kept from trying to say them. But eventually coaxed it on me. I was like, Yes, I I feel like I want to kill myself. And I have heard from others who were in the church how how their spiritual leaders responded at the time you know some are like oh you just need to pray it away my mom is one of those people by the way and I love my mom I don't want anyone to think that I don't love her I love her but people and I'm saying this in general to anyone who may hear this depression and wanting to kill oneself medically it's called suicidal ideation Those are not things that you can just pray away. Those are not things you can just sit down in a corner and go, God, please take this away. And maybe he does. Maybe miraculously he will. But there are some people out there where it's not a spiritual thing. Yes, some people might be a spiritual thing. And I was glad to see that my pastor was like, you know, this may be a mental thing. This may be a a chemical imbalance. You may need, you, you sound like you need help medically and I'm grateful for that. And he said he didn't know what to do at the time. Um, as far as like where he could take me for treatment, he knew if he took me to the ER, uh, that'd be a forced mandatory, but outside of that, he wasn't sure. So he's like, here's our game plan. And we, we put together a game plan and he made some calls and he called me the next day and said, all right, I got you an appointment for inpatient care at a psychiatric hospital. He's like, meet me at my place. And I'll, and I'll drive you up there. So I go in, I talk to, um, my, my manager at work. I just tell him, hey, I need to take off emergency. Um, no no explanation. And I'm thankful. I was thankful for him and what he was able to do to push through some things in HR. And the HR thing wasn't his fault. That That's just company HR issue. But we took care of that relatively easily. And, and I was thinking, well, he didn't ask too many questions, but he was just like, go get help. Go get the help you need. And I went to a psychiatric hospital. And I remember telling my pastor on the way up that I was glad he was driving me because A, I wouldn't have gone myself. I wouldn't have been able to find the courage to do it. And B, I told him as he was driving the highway, he's like, it's taken every ounce of strength to keep from opening up this door and jumping out because I do not want to go. I knew I needed help, but at the same time, I did not want it. Get to the hospital, and I get go through all the the processing um and eventually they're like, yep we need to uh we're gonna we're we're gonna do inpatient for you. They're like, all right, time to go to your room so, and if you've ever done inpatient or actually if you've never done inpatient therapy, they take away all your strings, uh especially for someone suicidal ideation hello uh so My shorts had to have the drawstrings removed. I had to remove the shoelaces on my shoes. I could have no strings, nothing that could tie up or tight or anything like that. Um, In the room, all the handles were essentially like pushed down and they only lasted for a few seconds. Uh, The toilets were wired, were uh, piped up in such a way that you couldn't, tie anything around anything and, you know, hang yourself. The doors couldn't lock. Uh, it it was, it was interesting. The only story I have from Impatient is this one. It it was actually part of my, uh, checking in process. So they take me down to the ward where I'll be staying and they're like, okay, here's your room. And they, put me in my room and at, at this point I had pretty much shut down. Going through my mind was the same phrases and thoughts over and over again, like, hey, you're a Christian. How could this be happening to you? Why is God letting this happen? Am I really a Christian? Why can how can someone who follows and believes in God be going through this? What's going on? You know, and, and I'm sitting on the bed, I'm leaning over my uh, head is in my hands, you know, over my eyes, over my face. And I'm just kind of like rocking back and forth. These thoughts just continuously processing through my head. Remember, I had just checked in. I'm going, what the heck am I doing? Why am I here? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why, 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 why? And one of the nurses in the unit sits down. She sits down the chair and she uh, takes out her, her notepad and she starts asking me you know, standard questions that they ask on the check and don't ask me to repeat them. I don't remember them. Trust me. Um, I've tried to think of them. Can't. And we're going through the questions. We're going through the questions and I'm, I'm still like, just kind of rocking back and forth. And she stops. She looks at me and goes, I feel like God's wanted me to tell you something. Is that okay? And at this point it hadn't come up, uh, in the questionnaire, you know, religious background or anything like that. You know, they were still getting to that point. And that kind of just hit me like, wait, what God God wants to say something right now? What, (laughs) you know, I'm sitting here in the lowest of the low, the, the filthiest of the pit. God wants to say something, like, and you know, you know, do the whole, yeah, yeah, it's okay, go on, sort of deal. She goes, God wants you to know, just, just because you're depressed, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. And I remember that hitting me like a ton of bricks, and that ton of bricks led to um straight up bawling and she repeated that again just because you're depressed just because you're going through this does not make you a bad christian and then she went on to talk about how she herself had gone through these mental issues how she had gone through depression how she herself had gone through this feeling that there was no hope and that death was the only answer and yet how she was on the worship team at her church, how it strengthened her faith in God and how God could use it for good in the end. And that snapped me out of that immediate funk of how could I be doing this as a Christian? And I'll be honest, if she had not said that, if she had not taken that 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 leap of faith to say, God wants to tell you something. And honestly, I do believe at that time, God did have a message for me. It took me getting to that low rock bottom to be able to finally hear it. And I do believe that if she had not said what she had said, if she had not followed where the spirit was leading her, if she had not listened to God herself, that that inpatient treatment either A, would have taken longer or B, would not have been effective. Then I would have fought it. But her saying that, her saying that flipped the script. It flipped the script instead of me saying, how could I be doing this as a Christian? How could I be in this hit? How could I want to kill myself? It flipped a script to say, okay, I'm here. There's something medically wrong with me and me actually t- believing it. And I'm here to get stable and I'm here to get better. And this does not mean that I have failed God. That This does not mean that I'm a horrible person. That This does not mean that I'm not a Christian and I'm not a follower of God, that this means that I'm just at a pit stop to medically get better and then use this experience and continue on my way. And after she shared this with me, we continue to talk about our, our own personal faith journeys for a little bit. You know, she couldn't spend a ton of time. She still had to do inpatient work with me uh, and get me, you know, processed into the system and everything. And we did that. And that, I remember that that lightened the load so much from my shoulders. It allowed me to actually heal on in the inpatient. And inpatient was not fast, it was slow. I was only there a week, but then I did like a good month, month and a half of extreme outpatient work, uh, where thankfully I was able to it around my work schedule and go ahead and come in a few hours late on a couple days a week and do a few extra hours on our days to make sure everything got taken care of in between the outpatient, the inpatient, the medication, and a lot of support, a lot of support from friends, friends who are like family. I made it through. No, I'm not going to say it's been all, you know, flowers and puppies and, you know, cotton candy and all that on the other side. There have been bad days. Never, thankfully, thankfully, never as bad as it has been back in the past. But there have been bad days where I just go, nope, I'm going to curl up into a ball and just kind of go over here and process what's going on until I get, you know, mentally uh, more stabilized. And it's been a few years now, and I haven't gone into that deep, funky despair between October and December, thankfully. Thank God. And it's slowly going to get better. And I know there might be a chance that I go back and revert. That's just how this works with mental health. It's not a guaranteed once you're on the right track, you're going to stay on the right track forever. It's a continual working progress. It's a continual thing where you have to take these skills and these ideas that you have learned over time and continuously put them in practice because if you don't you will fall right back into that stupid same trap that we all do and each mental health affliction has its own set of traps and its own set of issues and its own set of uh, things to do and not do like i said i'm not a gatekeeper i don't believe in saying oh i've never been blah. So I can never talk about blah, but I also do believe in the concept of, Hey, I do have experience with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. I can offer a bunch of tips on these things. And I also, because I know, and I've learned some stuff through uh, my outpatient care with mental health can offer up other things as well on how these things work and how to live a healthier, better life in regards to all that. So that's my story with me dealing with mental health. And and I'll say this is continuing to this day even. You know, I was just up at Life Fest out in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And part of what I did to cuz I'm by nature I'm an introvert, very much so, you know, too much social people interaction and I shut down. So it wasn't this year. It was 2019 because obviously No Life Fest 2020, COVID. And I did it a little bit this year, but it was less obvious. But 2019, it was very obvious where I came out to the group. I had breakfast with everyone and then went back to my tent. And when I went back to my tent, I just kind of went and laid down and uh just, you know, de- decompressed a little bit. And I remember Andy, you know, again, this was one year out from all this fun. So, you know, he's kind of still keeping an eye on me. Thank you, Andy. Can't say it enough. Anyways, he's still keeping an eye out for me. So he comes over to my tent and he just kind of like knocks on it. I unzip and He look up and he's like, everything okay? I'm just like, yeah, I am just recharging my social battery because my social battery had been completely drained. And I knew that if I didn't charge it up I isolating myself for a little bit, I was going to be cranky when interacting with people, just my introvertedness kicking in, you know? And I knew that that was something I had to do for myself to keep myself mentally healthy and mentally. Okay. And you learn these things as you go on, what these things are that you need to do. And some things will work for some people and some things won't, Uh, you know, we're all different. So, This is going to be a learning process for a lot of people. There's going to be some trial and error, and that's okay. But like I said, that was my story with mental health. Join us next time as we continue talking about mental health, and we're going to specifically talk about some of the things that the church is doing great about mental health.